The Gospel according to Luke is one of the earliest accounts of Jesus' life, and it's actually part one of a unified two-volume work, Luke-Acts. If you compare the opening lines of both of these books, it's clear that they come from the same author. And there are internal clues in the book of Acts, as well as an early tradition that identifies the author as Luke, the traveling companion and co-worker of Paul the Apostle, who we know was also a doctor. Luke opens his work with a preface telling us how and why he wrote this book. He acknowledges that there's many other fine accounts of Jesus' life out there, but he wanted to go back to the eyewitness traditions of as many early disciples as he could in order to produce what he calls an orderly account about the things that have been fulfilled among us. Now that word fulfilled shows us why Luke wrote this account. For him, the story of Jesus isn't just ancient history. He wants to show how it's the fulfillment of the long covenant story of God in Israel, and bigger than that, of the story of God in the whole world. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I mean, you don't even really need me to preach after that song. Y'all can, can just go home. I'm going to read this morning from the Gospel of Luke, starting in chapter 4, uh, verses 16 through 30. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? they asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. 
My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, our, our daughter, Charlotte, who's now almost two, does this thing where, you know, it's, it's late at night, and, you know, she's obviously tired, right? She's rubbing her eyes, and, and it's like her bedtime, and, and we say, okay, Charlotte, are, are you ready to go to bed? And, and she says, no. Well, it's late and you're tired, and I really think we should get you ready for bed. No. And, and then she goes a step further, and, you know, she starts trying to, like, convince you that she's hungry and she wants to eat. And, you know, and, and of course you give her the food and she throws it down, right? She doesn't want it because she's not hungry. And, and, and then she does this thing where, like, she'll start running laps around the house, right? Like, just running through the house full speed, right, through the living room and into the kitchen, and then back around through the dining room and into the living room, and just over and over again, right? Doing everything she can to convince you that she's not tired and does not need to go to bed. And then you pick her up to take her to bed, and what does she do? She screams bloody murder, right? And she thrashes around, and she's, you know, not ready to go to sleep. And then you get her into the dark, quiet bedroom, and you close the door, and, and what happens? Immediately the eyes close, and the head goes down, and she's fast asleep. It's incredible, right? You haven't even put her in the crib yet. You've barely just, right, knocked out. Jesus starts off his, the, this story by, by quoting from the prophet Isaiah. And, and this is a prophecy that was very, very widely understood to be a, a messianic prophecy. Isaiah foretelling uh, the day when, when God's Messiah will come and, and the people of Israel will be restored to their former glory and God will, all of God's promises will come true. And, and it's wonderful. And, and so, so people hearing him quote this and then saying that this has been fulfilled in your hearing, there's no question that they would have understood instantly he is claiming to be the Messiah. And at the very end of, of that passage, there's this line about the, the year of the Lord's favor, which is a reference to the year of uh, Jubilee. And if you've been reading along in the Bible reading plan, you'll remember you know, way back in Leviticus, it talks about this as, as a dedicated year when... Uh, when the year of Jubilee comes around, right, everyone's debts are forgiven, right, regardless of how much is left to pay off, regardless of what the debt is for, it's wiped out in that year. Uh, all the, the, literally, if you own any slaves, they're set free in the year of Jubilee, right, they can't be slaves anymore. Any, any property you've bought is returned to the original owner in the year of Jubilee, right, what a way to do business, right? It's bizarre, but, but the whole thing is set up so that right, in, a, in a world where owning land is the most reliable way of ensuring that your family is taken care of and your descendants are taken care of, it's a whole system that's set up to ensure that the people of Israel who are given land by God himself can never actually have it taken away. Um, so the whole thing is set up to, to reset everything every so often so that you... So anyway, pe people hear this, right? And of course they're excited, right? It's coming, the year of Jubilee is coming. All our debts will be wiped out. Right? The oppressors will be overthrown. This is great. They're all excited at first. And then Jesus kind of takes them off a little bit, as he's prone to do. Um, so during this, this period of time, um, right, what, what Jesus references, by the way, is Elijah and Elisha. He references two of the most revered prophets in the history of Israel and says, look at them, right? Look at, look at the miracles that they performed in their ministry and look where they happened and notice that they didn't happen with you people. They, they actually happened over there to those Gentiles and to those Gentiles over there and, and, 
And you would think, you would think that by referencing two of, of the most respected and revered figures in their own history and saying, uh, look what they did, right? He might have quieted down the crowd a little bit, but instead, actually, he makes them more angry. See, they have, uh, they have forgotten something important. Because all throughout the Old Testament, the scriptures insist that what God is doing is he's using the people of Israel to save the rest of the world. Right? That's the whole point. Abraham and his descendants have been set apart for a purpose, and that purpose, that purpose is to bring God's salvation and redemption to everyone else on earth. And what's changed is that it, by, by the time of the second temple period, which is now, right? This is Jesus' day and age. They built a new temple after the exile to Babylon. The, the common teaching within Judaism is this, that, that when God's Messiah comes, right, he'll, he'll lead us in this great glorious revolution against Rome. We'll overthrow the oppressors. We'll reestablish the, the kingdom of Israel just like it was under King David. And then then our kingdom will grow in, in strength and power until every other kingdom on earth bows down before us. So what, what they think is going to happen is that they will essentially take the place of Rome and that it is through that that God will save the rest of the world. And on top of this, there is an understanding amongst the Jews of this time period that even though they are physically back in the promised land, the exile is not over. If you look back into you know, Numbers and Leviticus, when it talks about the tabernacle, and then, then later on when they build the temple and they talk about the temple, they'll talk about the presence of God coming down on the tabernacle, and on the temple. And they describe it literally as like it's like clouds coming down out of heaven and touching this place on earth. And in fact, in, in Numbers, when they're wandering through the desert, that's how they know when it's time to pick up and move, when the clouds lift up from the tabernacle and then they pack everything up and they move until the clouds come back down. And they interpret this as the, the physical sign of God's presence with them. They can look right there and see him. But after they come back from the exile in Babylon and they build a new temple, that never happens again. It's never mentioned again. It does not happen. So they understand that, that even though they're physically back where they're supposed to be, the exile's not over. God's presence is still not with them, which is kind of the root of, of what the Pharisees are doing, right? The Pharisees have this insistence that the only way to get God's presence back in Israel is to hold, uphold the law perfectly, and it's within all of this backdrop that Jesus comes along and claims to be the Messiah, which means what he's really telling them is this right now, right here, is the moment when the exile finally ends. Right here and right now, God's presence is coming back among you, and it's in me. Which is part of why people get so mad at him. Because what he's telling them is, yeah, God is actually going to fulfill all these promises. And in fact, he's already starting. He's doing it right now. His presence is back among you, and it looks nothing like what you thought it was. It's happening completely differently. 
there will be no big uprising against the oppressors. God's going to overthrow them in a different way. And you're not going to get to rule over them, right? It starts to make sense why they're so mad. They've been oppressed and brutalized, and their hope is that one day they'll get to do the same thing to the people who've been doing it to them. And now Jesus is saying, actually, no. That's not how God works. Because he actually wants to bring them into his family as well. There's a reason why, why the Jewish people of his day get so outraged when he claims that the kingdom of God is for the Gentiles too. It's because these are the people who've been oppressing them and, and, and brutalizing them and, and insulting them and demeaning them. And now you're saying that we have to uh, welcome them into our extended family, the people of God. And they don't like it. And so they reject Jesus. And in this case, right, they literally carry him to a cliff and try and throw him off. And I always love the little bit about how he just slips through the crowd and gets away. I wish I could actually see how that worked, right? Because I'm very confused, right? If they've got him and they're about to throw him off a cliff, how does he get out of that? I think it'd be like a great little sitcom ending right there. I want to know, right? Does he just like duck and weave underneath? I don't, I don't know. But somehow he gets away. And they reject him. And his, he tells them ahead of time, right? I know that you're going to reject me. But they're... they're there's this whole tension where he's already gone to the city of Capernaum and he's already done miracles there and, and Capernaum's not a Jewish city. It's a Roman city. So even though there are Jewish people living there, culturally it's, it's mostly full of non-Jews and it's, it's kind of like looked down upon by the Jewish people as a place of sin because it's a Roman city. And so naturally the people of Nazareth are like, well, you went there and you healed people. Obviously you're going to do better stuff for us here because you know, we're your people, right? You grew up here. Come on, you owe us. And, and Jesus says, no, I'm not, because I know what you're going to do. And he noticed, by the way, he never does go back to Nazareth or perform any miracles there. They reject Jesus because they don't want to hear what he has to say. And how often do we reject Jesus because we don't want to hear what he's telling us? Right? Every one of us does this, and it's not, it's not like in a wholesale way. We don't just reject him completely, but we all have places in our lives and in our hearts where we do not want to hear what God is telling us. We would rather close that part of our lives off from him and ignore what he has to say. And, and right, this is the point where people, where it becomes really easy to, to sort of point to other people and judge them, right? I can't tell you how many times I've preached sermons like this, and after the end of the service, someone will say, well, I'm so glad you preached on that, Pastor Forrest, because so-and-so really needed to hear it. <laughs> and every time I'm thinking, I was talking to you, but okay. Um, right? All the time, all the time. I'm so glad that they heard that message. That was great. They really, they're terrible. They needed to hear it. Without fail, right? We want to point the finger at others and say, well, good thing that they heard that. Good thing, good thing. But we don't want to hear it for ourselves. We do this all the time, right? right? Oh, those, those 
silly progressives don't like to hear what God has to say about marriage, or oh, those conservatives don't like to hear what God has to say about immigrants. See, we all do it, right? doesn't matter if you're a brand new Christian or you've been going to church for 60 years. doesn't matter if you're Republican or Democrat, progressive, conservative, whatever. There is always some place in your life where you are trying to shut out what the gospel says. Because I'm telling you now, if you can read through the gospels and there's nothing in there that makes you uncomfortable or makes you feel a little bit bad about the way you've been living your life, you're not paying attention. Because we all fall short. Every last one of us has areas where we are missing the mark where we have intentionally closed that part of our life off to what God is telling us because we don't want to let go of something. We don't want to hear the truth of the gospel in that moment for that thing. It's a universal human experience, right? I am just as bad about it as everyone else. I catch myself doing it all the time. And the point is never to go and condemn other people for something. Rather, it's, it's to search your own heart and find those places where you are unwilling to hear the truth from God. Because we all, all do it. Jesus is inviting us to listen to him. And he's going to say things that we might not want to hear. He's going to find those places where we really do not want to turn ourselves over to the transforming power of Christ. And he's going to shine a bright light on them for us. And all too often we respond like my daughter responds at bedtime, right? No, I refuse to believe this. I'm going to do everything in my power to convince you that this is not true. Right? And we dig our heels in and we resist Sometimes we try and throw Jesus off the cliff. But you know, that only hurts us. It only, it only causes us to miss out. Jesus never goes back to Nazareth to perform miracles there or healings. He goes to all these other villages and he heals people. He, he, he raises people from the dead. He feeds people miraculously. He teaches extensively, right? He loves people. He builds relationships with them. Incredible things happen and communities are transformed and lives are changed forever, but not in Nazareth because they rejected him. And they didn't want to hear the message that he was bringing to them. See, God is going to do what God is going to do. And, and he wants to include us in it, and, and the invitation is always there, and, and we are always invited to come and participate in whatever it is that God is doing in, in the, the holy and saving work that he's up to in the world. We can be a part of it. And we don't actually have to be perfect before we do it, right? He's perfectly willing to take us as we are and accept the fact that it will take us time to actually work on the things he wants us to work on and improve ourselves and become better. And he's perfectly willing to accept that, that it will be difficult for us to actually uh, let him change every part of our lives and that that may take years or decades and it may not be done before we die. He's okay with that. That's why he invites people to come just as they are and there is no barrier to entry except that you'd be willing to listen. I mean, we're kidding ourselves if we think that we're better off without hearing the truth of the gospel. You know, what happens if my daughter stays up past her bedtime? Not good things. 
terrible, terrible things happen if that goes right. Because then she stays up too late and she's overtired and it's hard to put her down to sleep. And then when she does sleep, she sleeps in too late the next day and then she misses her nap and then she can't, and then she's all cranky the whole rest of the day and it throws her off for days. She may not want to hear that it's time to go to bed. (laughs) But the best thing for her is to go to bed when we say it's bedtime. I like to think that God knows what's good for us better than we do. (laughs) And that it's a good idea to trust in God even if we don't like what it is he's telling us. Even if it's uncomfortable, maybe even painful. And in a way, that's actually the whole point of Lent is to take this time every year to actually search our own hearts to find those places where we're clinging to something that Jesus wants us to let go of. When we've closed our eyes and our ears to the truth of the gospel and how it's supposed to change our lives. Not everyone else's life, but our lives. And to let go of them. To open ourselves up to what it is he's doing. We get that chance every year so that by the time we come and we celebrate Easter, we have been made new again. And we can fully appreciate the joy that comes with celebrating the resurrection, of knowing that our God still lives and still works in us and through us. Jesus is inviting us to listen. Will you hear him? Or will you reject him? In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.